The aftermath of this tragedy is not the time for jokes, pranks, or fake threats. If you're looking to get a felony arrest on your record, continue with the stupid jokes and the pranks. That was Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood addressing the media about the unexpected surge in school threats that have been reported following the February 14th school massacre in Parkland. That story and more are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the strange phenomenon across the state involving threats made by students in the wake of the Valentine's Day mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in South Florida. The cases have flummoxed law enforcement and school officials alike. Later, I'll discuss the 2008 double murder in Beachside Daytona that resulted in the arrest, conviction, and death sentence of Douglas Matthews, whose sentence now hangs in the balance. If overturned, the state attorney's office will have to decide whether to put him back on death row. Among my guests for that segment will be the state attorney of the 7th Judicial Circuit, R.J. Larizza. Coming up, the story of a suspected drug dealer charged with first-degree murder following a woman's fatal overdose. A Palm Coast man with a long history of drug charges is now behind bars on account of first-degree murder. Grand jurors last week indicted Joseph Cologne in connection with the November 13th death of 23-year-old Savannah DeAngelis, who less than three weeks earlier was rushed to the hospital after being found unconscious in her family's Palm Coast home. She never left the hospital and died from complications related to her overdose. Flagler County Sheriff's deputies said the 34-year-old Cologne sold DeAngelis heroin that was laced with fentanyl, a potent opioid that is often used as an ingredient for anesthesia. The first-degree murder charge is the first of its kind in Flagler County and maybe in the entire 7th Judicial Circuit, which encompasses Flagler, St. John's, Putnam, and Volusia counties. An amendment to state law took effect October 1st that added fentanyl to the list of substances for which authorities can charge drug dealers with murder for distributing illegal drugs that result in an overdose. Flagler County Sheriff Rick Staley said during a media conference last week that the state and national opioid crisis caused him to investigate all overdoses as murders. Here is Staley telling the media what witnesses saw the morning of October 28th outside the DeAngelis home on Front Street. Uh, the investigation determined that on October 28, 2017, the day of Savannah's overdose, at 11.33 a.m., Joseph Kwan was seen on surveillance video entering her subdivision where he provided the name Joey at the gate. Around 11.40 a.m., witnesses reported seeing a male driving a black Nissan stop at the front of her residence and Savannah runs out the door and is given something from within the vehicle. The vehicle then quickly leaves. State Attorney R.J. Larissa said detectives were able to prove the drug transaction between the suspect and victim, 
an investigative feat that he called remarkable. Staley also said two more people came forward during the investigation into Cologne, alleging they too had overdosed on the drugs sold to them by Cologne. They survived to tell their stories. Cologne had already been in jail without bail ever since he was picked up on a litany of drug charges on November 6th. Authorities served Cologne his murder warrant while he was in jail Wednesday. DeAngelis was found unconscious October 28th on a bathroom floor by her father. She was lying near a syringe and two plastic bags, which contained heroin laced with fentanyl. He performed CPR on DeAngelis until paramedics arrived to take her to the hospital. She lived for only 16 more days. The sheriff promised his agency would make more arrests if more dealers continue to sell these fatal mixtures of narcotics. To the drug dealers in Flagler County, if you peddle poison in our community, we are coming after you. If you murder someone with your drugs, we will find you, track you down, and arrest you for murder. It will be our goal that you spend the rest of your life in prison. Coming up, the story of eight students getting arrested in separate cases involving school threats across Volusia County. It's been 12 days since the mass shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Broward County. Since then, a strange trend has emerged that has infuriated local officials. A number of students are going to social media, or in some cases, even standing up in the middle of class and making threats about shooting or blowing up their school. Excluding today, there have been six school days since February 14th. Schools in Volusia County alone have reported 24 incidents, which have translated to eight students getting arrested and one being detained for a medical evaluation. Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood said to me on Friday that the situation is now out of control. He told me, quote, the more we say we're going to lock them up, the more they do it. So Chitwood has come up with an idea. He has proposed fining parents $500. He said that should incentivize parents to get a hold of their kids' phones and more closely monitor what they're saying and posting. In many of these cases, the students have told school officials and law enforcement they were only joking when they made their comments, but they are getting no sympathy and no breaks from the likes of police. The most recent report of an arrest came at Deltona High when a 15-year-old student stood up in English class and said, quote, shut up or I'll pull out my arm cannon. The student swore he was making a reference to a video game character, and the comment wasn't meant to be taken seriously. He wound up being charged with a felony. Many of the threats have been posted on social media. Several of them were discovered within 48 hours of the Parkland massacre. Here was Chitwood addressing that a week before last, warning students that if they thought they would remain anonymous after posting these threats, they had another thing coming they would be tracked down. We are constantly trolling social media for these threats. And guess what? We're smarter than you. We're going to find you. And you're going to find the sheriff and his deputies on your front doorsteps 
arresting you. Threats have been investigated at high schools, middle schools, and even elementary schools. An eight-year-old boy was expelled at Freedom Elementary in DeLand on allegations he made a threat on a school bus. At least one threat also was investigated at a local Catholic school. A student was removed from Father Lopez Catholic High on Friday and arrested after a fellow student reported something he said from two days earlier. Such threats are being reported all over the state, even in Broward County, where the shootings took place. Less than 20 miles from Parkland, a 13-year-old female student at Central Charter School in Lauderdale Lakes was arrested six days ago on allegations she threatened to kill students on two different dates. Other arrests have been made from Tampa to Ocala to Palatka. Even in tiny Gilchrist County, located near Gainesville, Schools were closed for the day on February 16th based on a threatening email that had been sent the previous night. One female student last week was taken into custody by DeLand police after school officials found her with a pink cell phone case that was shaped like a handgun. Here is DeLand police chief Jason Umberger addressing that issue with the media. It makes no sense to me that cell phone accessories are being made to look like handguns, and it makes no sense that gun manufacturers are making fatal weapons into novelties such as pink handguns. Here is Daytona Beach Police Chief Craig Capri telling me what he thinks about the perceived increase in school threats. It's uh, ridiculous. It's uh, irresponsible. And, and, and to me, it's not a joke. As some people are making out while well, those kids making jokes. Well, there's no joke when you talk about something this serious and these horrific, tragic events that have been plaguing our country for years, you know, and, and you're going to try to like copycat it and glorify it. It's ridiculous. Erica Washington, a spokeswoman for the Ninth Circuit State Attorney, which handles criminal cases in Orange and Osceola counties, said to the News Journal last week that prosecutors plan to look at each case individually and decide how to proceed based on various factors, including the student's age, prior history, and the consequences of the threat. For instance, whether the school was placed on lockdown. Coming up, the story of a 2008 double murder of two people inside a known drug house in Beachside, Daytona. Among my guests will be State Attorney R.J. Larizza and News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez. On November 20, 2008, 10 years ago last Tuesday, a 50-year-old man and a 51-year-old woman were fatally stabbed inside an apartment at 139 South Halifax in Daytona Beach. That same night, police arrested Doug Blaine Matthews, who had just moved to Daytona from North Carolina. He was indicted on two counts of first-degree murder. The victims were identified as Kirk Zeller and Donna Trujillo. The couple was murdered inside the latter's apartment. Matthews, who was 26 at the time, was found by police inside his own apartment a few blocks away. He was hiding in a pile of laundry. Among the items confiscated during the search of his apartment were bloody jeans, sneakers, a shirt, and Zeller's wallet. 
Matthew's record, in spite of his relatively young age, included five felony convictions. The slayings of Trujillo and Zeller wound up being his sixth and seventh. Daytona Beach police at the time said the murder scene was far bloodier than most. Trujillo had lived a troubled life. She had numerous drug-related arrests on her record, including cocaine possession. It was believed that she and Zeller were both there to do drugs with Matthews. The defendant, according to statements he gave to detectives, said he witnessed Zeller stabbing Trujillo, so he attacked Zeller in an effort to save Trujillo. Prosecutors later said Zeller and Trujillo were hacked to death by their killer. The walls were splattered with blood, and the victims suffered stab wounds to their heads, necks, and bodies. Zeller also was stabbed in the back. Prosecutors debunked the defense's story that Matthews intervened when he walked up and saw Zeller stabbing Trujillo. They said Matthews was the one who was stabbing Trujillo, and it was actually Zeller who showed up as it was happening. Matthews then attacked Zeller. Trujillo was stabbed eight times, five times in the chest and three times in the head and neck. She had a pillow covering her face while she was getting killed. As for the stabbing of Zeller, prosecutors described that attack as animalistic. The point of the knife was actually found embedded in Zeller's scalp. He was stabbed a total of 24 times. Matthews had also told a friend that he had, quote, eliminated two problems. That friend testified at Matthews' trial in May 2010. Detectives said that Matthews committed murder that night so that he could steal a wallet. That was his motivation. Matthews took the stand in his own defense at trial, saying he was in fear for his life when he came upon Zeller. He said he grabbed a knife and just started swinging. An eyewitness said he saw Matthews stab Zeller inside the apartment. He said it happened after an argument had erupted between the two in a back bedroom. The witness, a 20-year-old male, said he did not see Matthews stab Trujillo. He added that the scene inside the apartment was so gory, he ran outside to vomit. Matthews, while on the stand, said he was sorry the two people had to lose their lives that night. They lost their lives, he said, because of drugs. A prosecutor who cross-examined Matthews asked him point-blank whether it was true that the reason he was sorry was that he was the one who killed them both. He insisted that was not the case. The clothes Matthews was found with when he was caught were actually soaked in Zeller's blood, according to trial testimony. Only a small trace of Trujillo's blood was found on him. Zeller was smaller in stature than Matthews, he also was hobbled by foot and shoulder problems. On May 25, 2010, jurors convicted Matthews of the first-degree murder of Kirk Zeller. As for the Donna Trujillo slang, they convicted Matthews of a lesser charge of manslaughter, presumably because there was no living witness to that killing. On May 28, jurors recommended the death penalty for Matthews. The vote was 10-2. Assistant State Attorney Jason Lewis said the heinous, atrocious, and cruel manner of the killing meant death was the only appropriate punishment by law. In August of that year, 
The judge carried out the jury's recommendation and ordered Matthews to die by lethal injection. The judge said he gave great weight to one aggravator that was presented by prosecutors, which was Matthews' violent history. In 2002, Matthews had kicked and beat a man for $500. In February 2013, the Florida Supreme Court upheld the convictions and death sentence for Matthews. But in 2016, another court ruling could have big ramifications on Matthews' sentencing. That 10-2 death sentence recommendation is likely to be problematic for the state. Here is News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez explaining to me that 2016 ruling in the case of Hearst versus Florida. Basically, the Florida Supreme Court ruled that jury recommendations for death must be unanimous. This was back in uh, October of 2016. So they're going back and any case that comes before them where the recommendation was not unanimous and was made after 2002, I believe, and it's being overturned, basically. Several inmates who were put on death row based on jury recommendations that were 7 to 5, 8 to 4, 9 to 3, 10 to 2, or even 11 to 1, promptly filed motions to have their cases overturned. In some cases, those defendants who were convicted long before 2002 were still eligible for an overturned death sentence. In those cases, their original sentences were thrown out, and they went through the process again, only to have another jury recommend death. So they were returned to death row. But if those resentencings took place after 2002, they could wind up getting resentenced yet again. That has already happened at least once in this judicial circuit. Matthews has not had his death sentence vacated yet, but it's expected to come. I recently spoke with State Attorney R.J. Larizza, whose office handles criminal cases in Volusia County. He couldn't say a lot about the Matthews case. In fact, he couldn't discuss any of the specifics as long as it remains possible that he will be resentenced in the not-so-distant future. Well, what I can tell you is uh, that uh, Matthews, if he files a motion for uh, to get relief under the Hearst case, which was the United States Supreme Court case, uh, then he will be eligible for the Hearst remedies, which means either a resentencing uh, where the death penalty is sought, or it could be a life sentence, uh, depending on what the family wants, depending on the uh, posture of the case as it stands now. And, uh, you know, getting with law enforcement, just making, making a decision about what's the appropriate way to proceed. Frank Fernandez told me one significant part of the discussion is the aggravating circumstances. Those are weighed heavily. Certainly the 24 stab wounds suffered by Zeller will be part of that discussion. Yes, they they go through their list of aggravators and, uh, you know, they've got the heinous, atrocious and cruel aggravator, which is a big one. Uh, Hacking to death would probably fall under that one. Uh, cold, calculated, and premeditated uh, is another big one. Um, so, yeah, the, that that sounds like that definitely will be part of the uh, equation as to what they decide as far as the death penalty or not. Larissa's office already has made decisions about some of the cases. For instance, 
Larissa decided not to pursue death again for double murderer William Gregory, who I profiled on this podcast back in September. That meant Gregory, who killed his daughter's mother and her new boyfriend with a shotgun while the pair slept inside the female victim's grandparents' house, will not have to appear back in court. He will spend the rest of his life in prison, in general population. Larissa has decided, however, to pursue death again for Daniel Snellgrove, who I profiled in his Sun Crime State episode two weeks ago. He was convicted of killing his elderly neighbors in Palm Coast so he could steal their money and jewelry, so he could use them to buy more drugs. A new sentencing hearing essentially means retrying the entire case because jurors will need to be educated on the crime in order to make a sentencing recommendation. The Hearst ruling does not overturn any convictions, just death sentences. Larissa told me he has already begun talking to the families of the victims killed by Matthews in the event that case gets kicked back to his office. When do you anticipate sitting down with members of the families of the victims in the Matthews case? How soon do you well, think Well, we've might- been doing that. It's an ongoing matter. You know, when, when cases become eligible and, and actually when they are when they're ordered to uh, come back to uh, the Seventh Circuit for a Hearst resentencing or for a, a Hearst uh, remedy, then we then we sit down with uh, the families, then we discuss it with them and with law enforcement and explain the whole process to them. We've done it with several families already. You may have noticed uh, that we've we've pled some cases to life sentences. Farina was one of the probably one of the more uh, notorious cases. Larissa was referring to Anthony Farina, who, along with his brother Jeffrey, entered a Taco Bell in May 1992 on Bevel Road in Daytona Beach. They shot three employees and stabbed another. Three of the four victims survived, but a fourth, a 17-year-old girl, died. Both originally were sentenced to die. But Jeffrey was a juvenile at the time, and the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2005 that executing juveniles was unconstitutional. Anthony Farina, who was an adult at the time of the murders and whose sentence was overturned by the Hearst ruling, wound up getting a life sentence last spring. I'll be talking more about that case in a future podcast. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when we will discuss the crazy story of the assassination of Edgewater dentist Norman Larzalier, who was killed at his workplace 27 years ago. Arrested were his wife and stepson. Only one was convicted, the victim's widow, Virginia Larzalier. You won't want to miss that story next week. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.